So our sermon text is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. in the way of this earpiece. It worked earlier. It also worked better when I had less hair, but it's neither here nor there. It's very yonder. All right. I've got some science uh, experiment stuff down here. I'm just kidding. It's my Bible. Um, well, it is uh, great to see you all. Now I can see you and um, at uh, the world-famous uh, Vine Street Baptist Church. <laughs> I'm not sure why that... That shouldn't be funny. It's, uh, that's actually, it's actually beautiful. And, and uh, thank you, Johan. I, I, I hope, uh, actually, that it, that it ties in uh, with our sermon this morning. I, I hope, uh, by God's grace, um, that Vine Street Baptist Church... Uh, though it is small, uh, could be mighty. Um, and, I, and I hope that in, in being mighty that it would be famous uh, for some things. Um, to, uh, say, uh, before I, I launch into the sermon this morning, I, I want to provide a, a bit of a roadmap uh, for where we, we are going. Um, this, these five verses uh, that Pastor Mike just read to us uh, we see in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14, um, Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae uh, as a model for us, as an earnest prayer from the heart for the church that's rooted in a belief in what God is doing uh, in the heart of the church, in the heart of of the individual believers that make up that church. So we've got uh, three points um, that, that we hope to see this morning. The, one is, the first one is the prayerful church. The second is the life of the church. And third, the rescuing God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we examine your word this morning, pray that, um, that the same Holy Spirit that enabled 
Paul to write these words, these inspired words to the church of Colossians, uh, to the church in Colossae, where we pray um, that the same spirit that was at work centuries ago will be active in our own hearts today. Lord, we pray that we would be uh, inspired to think and act like this church and that we would be inspired to pray as Paul did. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I remember the feeling of immense satisfaction I felt on a Saturday morning outside the Library of Congress when I, a a college sophomore spending a semester in Washington, D.C., was asked for directions by some lost tourists. I gave great directions. Directions that, frankly, would be completely unnecessary in the year 2021 because of, you know, these guys, you know. but at the same time, you all, they were, they were solid directions. The kind of directions that you would give if you had lived someplace your entire life. And so, yeah, it felt good to help some people at that moment. Um, but, but what I was really basking in, you all, was the fact that I felt like I knew Washington, D.C. And that I could maybe even pass as a Washingtonian. I know some of you are like, why would anyone want to be, you know, confused as a Washingtonian? But anyways, it, it felt amazing to feel like I knew that place that well. You know, one of the things that strikes me about the letter of Paul to the Colossians to include this prayer of Paul's is that he speaks as someone who knows this church in Colossae. He is talking about this church like he has a true personal connection. But friends, he didn't. If, if you look at the way that Paul speaks about, about other churches, it's clear that he doesn't have the same kind of relationship that he has with others. So there's none of the, the instructions like, tell Sally and Judy to stop fighting with each other. There's, there's none of that here. And there's, there's no personal recollections about uh, the time when they really went above and beyond and out of their way to help him. It's not, it's not here. It's not in this letter. There's no firsthand knowledge whatsoever outside of really you know, secondhand knowledge that he received from uh, Epaphras uh, and Onesimus. He doesn't know the church in Colossae. And yet, Paul knows some really important things about the church in Colossae. And it shapes both the way that he thinks and the ways in which he prays for this church. So as we jump into this passage, one of the first things we have to do, um, or, or even that we see in verse 9, is, is that we really need to take a look at some of the preceding verses in order to understand what Paul is saying. You know, the words, uh, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, 
we haven't stopped praying for you make absolutely no sense, right? Unless we first go back and, and look at what precedes it. So let's look briefly. I think we can do this just at verses 4 through 6 as a key to understanding and applying verse 9. Verse 4 says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. So those words, we have heard, again reinforce that Paul's knowledge of this church is entirely secondhand. But most significantly, you see here what it is that truly excites Paul, and it's twofold. The heart of Paul, the, the heart that causes him to pray for and love these people that he has never personally encountered, is centered on the reality that they have one, faith in Christ Jesus, and two, love for all the saints. So they're marked by faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. That's all it takes for Paul to really love these people and to speak to them in such a way that he feels like he really knows them, despite never seeing one of them. He could not go into a grocery store and pick up, you know, I, th I think that guy, I think he's from the church in Colossae. It's not happening. But he knew them because they have faith in Christ Jesus and they have a love for the saints. I hope we can see a similar reality for this when we pray corporately as a church body. You know, when we get to that part of the church service um, where we have what I refer to um, as, as the prayer of the people, today I think we could call it the pastoral prayer because Mike uh, prayed it, we regularly pray for both a local church and an international mission. Um, so we, we prayed uh, for the mission in Kenya today. Um, that The international mission that we pray for regularly um, here is a ministry that we are partnered with in some form or fashion, sometimes, uh, but not always financially. And yet we're always partnered with that mission in prayer. Uh, missions, of course, cannot run without funding. And to the extent that we are able, I think we should think about financial gifts. Um, but to have the mindset and the spiritual priorities of Paul that we see in verse 9 where he exclaims, we haven't stopped praying for you. If it is genuine, that is truly the mindset will undeniably fuel thinking about the myriad of ways that we can be of service to those who are on the mission field. Let's enter into that time of prayer our missionary partners in this same sort of passionate way that we see Paul doing. And when it comes to praying for, for local churches, this, this is interesting, right? Uh, I mean, sometimes we pray, as we did this morning for, for Clifton, uh, for a church in Louisville that's, that's, you know, kind of a household name among Baptists, a, a Ninth and O, a Highview, a Sojourn, a Third Avenue. Um, maybe we know the senior pastor's name, um, 
Maybe we have a personal connection with uh, people who are at those churches, or if we're students, uh, we sit in class and have you know study breaks with with people who are um, members of those churches. But I've I've stood at this lectern right here before and prayed for churches in Louisville that I have never heard of uh, prior to seeing their name on a spreadsheet. Uh, that Chandler received from the local Baptist Association. How do we pray for that church? I, don't, I mean, I, I look them up on Facebook, so I, so I know the name of the pastor, frankly, um, or, you know, look up their website. I, I don't, don't know them. Uh, the answer is we pray like Paul. We pray with an understanding that the church exists because it as a body, has a faith in Christ Jesus, and that this faith is the basis for their love for one another. To see each member of the church grow in a knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be purchased by his blood, forgiven of sins, and given a new life to serve him by loving others in the church and inviting those who are not a part of it to see the beauty of life that exists where there is faith in Jesus. We want this. Oh, we want this for Vine Street. We should want this for every church that exists because Jesus is the risen Christ. And so we pray in this manner when we gather together. What about when we aren't gathering as a church? Uh, This prayer of Paul's is rightly seen as one group praying for another group. So we, plural, of course, haven't stopped praying for you. It's also plural, that collective body of saints in Colossae. I think we can and should carry this down uh, to lower levels of social dynamics. So a men's Sunday school class, uh, when it returns, uh, should be praying for a woman's Sunday school class, and vice versa. A small group uh, meeting at the dentist's home should be praying for the same gathering at the McCarthy home, and vice versa. Or, you know, the, um, the bainters uh, at the dinner table at, at Wendy's or, you know, wherever um, should be praying for, you know, Joe... Uh, gross and, and, and vice versa, and on and on and on. We should be praying for one another in this capacity. If Paul can pray with this kind of heart for a church that he has never met in person, how much more can we pray in this way for those who are part of the same body of believers? Um, I want to be, be careful here. Because I, I think that there's a way in which a person can stand in the pulpit and project several things poorly. First, I want to admit to you that Sean Dennis could stand to do far better at praying for other members of Vine Street. I can do better. I, I should do better. I hope to do better. But the second thing I want to say is perhaps more important uh, than the first. I don't want you all, Vine Street, I don't want a permeating sense of guilt 
to be the driving motivation for my or your prayers for one another, for other churches, or for our missionaries. The reason why Paul says things like, we haven't stopped praying for you, or gives instructions elsewhere, pray without ceasing. First Thessalonians. It's, it's not so that you can feel a tremendous amount of guilt. It's not. Just because your prayer life today doesn't look like the way that maybe it ought to, don't come away from the Sunday morning going, I just feel so guilty about it. That's not my point. No, on the contrary, Paul's prayers and ours, instead of being driven by the fear that we aren't performing well enough, should be driven by a joyful faith that sees every spiritual practice as an invitation, an invitation to participate in the life that God has graciously given us as part of what it means to have received a rich inheritance from him. If your prayer life is feeling stale, don't don't beat yourself up, but go. Go to the author and perfecter of your faith and ask him to help you see your salvation with the type of overflowing joy that leads to a life of praise and prayerful concern for others. Before I I move on from the first point of the prayerful heart, I want to make it absolutely clear that this heart of Paul's is not his alone. It is the community of faith's heart praying for another community of faith. Again, uh, since this day, we heard this. We haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Again, in Western culture, and particularly this American life, we have gotten very good at looking at, at all of life through the lens of individualism, uh, to include the way that we often look at our Bibles. This is not the case for Paul. The spiritual life was not just about Paul and Jesus. But even as he considered something that we would frankly consider very private, that is our, our prayer life, Paul considered it through and through a corporate activity for, for him to be engaged in. And, and Paul's not alone when it comes to the New Testament witness on what our prayer lives should look like. So we consider the Lord's model prayer. When he tells his disciples how they should pray, he doesn't give them my Father who art in heaven, but our Father who art in heaven. And yes, um, we, do, we don't, we don't want to just say it's always only ever needing to be a, a corporate life. Far from it. What, in fact, what does Jesus say? Uh, when you pray, uh, don't be like uh, those who love to stand in front of others so as to be heard. 
But what? Go into your closet. Getting alone with God is something that Jesus would expect of his disciples and would expect it of church members in the 21st century today. But he could also never conceive of a spiritual life that exists outside of regular fellowship, communion, and prayer with other believers. Um, I, I think we need, we need a lot of wisdom about this subject, uh, particularly at this time. So for, for over a year, there's been legitimate concern that the, that the very act of coming together could jeopardize the lives of one another. And yet, our lives should be understood as legitimately needing one another for survival and for growth, for flourishing. It's not at all surprising to me uh, that I've heard words from people, not, not people at Vine Street, but elsewhere, um, people close to me um, have said things like, I'm walking away from the church, but I'm not walking away from Jesus. I, I just don't think that that can be reconciled with the life of the New Testament believer who saw his or her identity um, truly and undeniably wrapped up in the fabric of the community, the Christian community of faith, the church. So, yes, over the years, um, we've built up some really some dumb uh, man-made artifices uh, onto the church. And I think it's worth saying uh, on this subject that there's no question, no question at all, that there are some people who have been hurt uh, by others in the church in shameful and awful and infuriating ways. And, and in some of these settings, uh, the, the church has uh, also infuriatingly protected the wrong people. They've, they've, there have been places where churches have protected abusers instead of seeking to do whatever they can for the victim. And so have just you know, layered on more hurt for the victim. So I'm in no way, no way calling uh, for someone to return to an abusive church setting where those exist. And yet, the antidote for someone who has been hurt by a church is not to never step foot into the life of another congregation. Uh, but instead to seek to show that person in a loving, compassionate, and patient way that, that the church, as the bride of Christ, can be a source of real healing. That in spite of sheep or wolves in sheep's clothing, there are churches that seek to love as Jesus loves. This may seem like a bit of a rabbit trail. Um, I, I want to assert, though, that I, that I think that it, it really helps us transition uh, to, to the next point this morning, and that is 
the life of the church. Uh, this prayer not only teaches us how to pray for, our, for others and, and for ourselves, um, it, it gives us excellent insight into what Paul understands as God's desire and design for the community of faith. To put it succinctly, from verses 9 through 12, his prayer for the church of Colossae is really twofold. Paul prays that the church would be, one, filled with the knowledge of God's will, and two, strengthened with all power. And then he provides the reasons why he prays this way. Let's take a look at why he asked God for the church, that the church would be, so first, filled with the knowledge of God's will. He, he prays this so that it can, and I'm, and I'm going straight here from, from verse 9 and verse 10. He prays that the church will be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that it will, one, walk worthy of the Lord, two, bear fruit in good work, and three, grow in the knowledge of God. If you've ever stepped foot into the Christian marketplace, you've no doubt encountered books, study guides, and or conferences on the subject of knowing God's will. The really good marketers have figured out a way to successfully package it even to, to, to niche audiences, right? So, uh, hey, undeclared college major, are you wondering what this life is really all about and what you're supposed to do for the next 20 years? Well, just buy this book by this best-selling Christian author, and you'll know God's will for your life. You know, then you read it, and there you have it. Or, or maybe, maybe, hi there, slightly balding man with a slowing metabolism. Is that a middle midlife crisis you're going through? Or, or maybe it's that you need to unlock God's will for your life. Attend this conference. We've got a chain of blocked hotel rooms for you to stay at. The corporate rate. Friends, I can do one better for you. Save your money. Um, and turn with me just a couple pages over. The, the next letter of Paul's is 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5. Almost the end of the book there. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's it. No book, no conference, no elaborate 13 study week required. The cool kids might say, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Uh, but, but listen, it, it's one thing to see these three really short verses in 1 Thessalonians, and it's another thing to live them consistently for a lifetime as an individual and as a church body.
So while I may not need a 13-week study, I need a however many years I'm alive on, on this planet reminder of, of this thing, and we need that for one another. And so instead of laying out a 12-point action plan so that you can rightly and regularly rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything, what does Paul do? He prays. He prays. And brothers and sisters, if Paul thought it was necessary for him to pray these things for the church, it's absolutely imperative that we pray for God to equip this church and pray for other churches to know and to do his will. I, and I hope you can see, too, that these verses in 1 Thessalonians 5 can really easily be folded into these verses in Colossians 1. So starting with that first sentence in Colossians 1.9, we are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge that you should rejoice always, pray constantly. I'm, I'm switching over to First Thessalonians just in case you were wondering where did I, where did I get those. It's not, it's not the translation. You should rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything. This is God's will. If the church is filled with the knowledge that this is God's will for our life, then verse 10 finds its fulfillment. You will, we will be walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. The fruit of the Christian life grows beautifully and tastes beautifully when it is cultivated in the soil of prayer that asks God to enable us to live lives of prayerful rejoicing and thanksgiving. In verse 11, we see the second component of Paul's prayer. He asks the church may be strengthened with power so that it can have endurance and patience and joyfully give thanks to the Father. The church must be understood to be unlike any other organization on the earth. It alone is called to be supernatural. Uh, can, can anything that is natural become supernatural on its own? At the risk of being confronted by a great student of, of comic books uh, with a well actually, uh, I'm going to say it, it always requires an act of supernatural power to create something supernatural. Iron Man, Batman, they're not supernatural. You know, Spider-Man, yes. Batman, no. Um, I'm going to say further that at least as it relates to the church, the natural becomes supernatural when God acts to strengthen it. But the real question is, why? 
why does God strengthen the church? This is actually a fundamental and important question. Why does the church need the power of the almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all things? We can focus our energies on many, many things. Some of them very worthwhile and some incredibly frivolous. But here, we see that Paul strengthens the church for something that that many people might even consider rather mundane. It's so that the church can be patient and endure and give thanks to God. That's it. Of all the things that we pray for, do we pray, like Paul, that God will strengthen us so that we have the power to be patient and endure and give joyful thanks to him. Paul thought it was worthwhile. The the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul knew that it was worthwhile for, for him to record this thing for the church immoral to, to be marked by a, a life of prayer that asks God help us to be patient and help us to endure. And the and the joyful part? I I mean, look, that that's I've got I've got endurance. I've got patience. Um, maybe not always for my kids like I should, um, but like some of you know this. I love to ferment things, which part of it just means like putting something on a shelf and leaving it there for a really long time and not touching it. I can do that forever. Patience with that. I'll go. Uh, you know, this week the longest run that I was able to fit in. Uh, was ten and a half miles. I love endurance. Endurance, patience. Yeah. Yeah. Joy. Ooh. Um, that's, that's likely not happening if I'm only relying on my own strength. Um, the good news is, Christian, God is not asking you to fake joy. If you're not feeling joy, please, 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 I beg of you, don't act like you're joyful. This passage reminds us that we need to be supplied with joy, which of course implies that we need to press into God to possess it. It doesn't come naturally. He's not asking you to show up every Sunday morning with a fake plastic smile on your face and pretend like someone you're not. So don't. But he is asking something of you. He's asking you to feel your need for him. He's asking you to turn to him and ask for the strength that he and he alone supplies. And this brings us really to our last point, the rescuing God. And this is not just the crescendo of Paul's prayer. It's also the sheet music that the rest of the notes of the prayer are written on. 
Paul turns to God to pray for the church because the start, the end, and every point in between of our salvation is only ever a reality because of God's saving action on our behalf. We see this truth framed in multiple ways. So look with me, verse 12. Paul says, God the Father enables us to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Verse 13, we see that God has both rescued us, he's rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. In verse 14, we see that in Jesus we have been redeemed, and through him our sins have been forgiven. The action in each of these verses is time and time again. The action belongs to God, and we are the recipients of his saving action. Not one person will be able to share in the inheritance of the saints unless God enables him to partake. Not one person can rescue himself from the domain of darkness. Not one can be transferred into the kingdom of the Son unless the Father makes that move. And not one person, no, not one, is redeemed apart from the work of Jesus on the cross. You can just feel Paul getting stirred up in his prayer life as he, as he thinks about these realities and how it pertains to the church that God has given him a love for. So we pray like Paul prayed, asking that we and other saints around this world, whether we know them or not, until Christ returns, will have faith in the God of our salvation. And that that faith will increase along with our love for others. And that we will be filled with the knowledge of his will for our life so that we can live lives that are pleasing to him and be strengthened to patiently endure this life with joyful gratitude for all he has done and all he will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this prayer of Paul's for the church in Colossae. Lord, we, we give you praise that just as you were at work in the salvation of those men and women so many years ago, you are still at work redeeming people for yourselves. Lord, I pray that Vine Street will be the type of church that looks upon this prayer in your scripture and says, yes, Lord, strengthen us. Yes, Lord, give us the type of hope in you, 
faith in Christ and love for other saints that grows in Louisville and produces faith all over the Lord, all over the world. Lord, help us to be those small, mighty, because we know you are mighty God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.